that was a lot of effort. So thank you so much. Uh, so that's, that's the first aspect of it, okay? Now, if you already are part of a cell group and you do not have access to your right now media account, then I would suggest that you find the email that I sent you, um, set up your account, and access the gift that's there. There's some amazing resources which I've looked at already, and other people from parenting to finance to, to, to leadership to uh, marriage. There's a whole, it's a great resource that we want to actually bless you with. Um, please utilize it. Please utilize it, because what's really fascinating about the book of James, Martin Luther, the great reformer, actually said that James shouldn't have, been a part, shouldn't have been a part of the Bible. He actually said it was a book of straw, because Luther saw it as a book that was based upon works, and that our acceptance by God was based upon our works, and based upon how hard we tried, which isn't actually true at all. What the book of James focuses on is that if you are a believer... If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you've come to know him as your Lord and Savior, this is what it looks like. This is how it should be. This is how the person you say you are should be conducting themselves. That's what James is about. James is a very practical book. It's a very practical book. And my prayer is that we, as we go through this series, will not just, as Andrew shared just before, would not just build up an accumulation of knowledge, but rather that that knowledge actually challenges us and changes us from the insight that affects how we conduct ourselves outwardly. I mean, because in all honesty, knowledge for knowledge's sake is stupid. Just because you know doesn't necessarily mean it'll benefit anybody. It may benefit you. And it actually talks about this in First Corinthians, that when it's knowledge, knowledge without love, well, you just become proud. And that's all that is. And we don't want that to happen as we, as the people of God, work through this book. So does that make sense? So what we're going to do today is we're going to start with James. We're going to look at James chapter 1. Verses 1 to 18. So if you have your Bibles, please open up there or turn there in your, your device. James chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And I'm going to ask my brother Nick, once again, if he could come up and share that passage with us. Thank you. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Verse 7. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity we have now to go into your word and be ministered to by your spirit. We ask, Father, that you will help us not only to learn and and to be revealed knowledge, Father, but that that knowledge would make an impact in our hearts. Pray that our hearts will be sensitive to your spirit, and as we hear from you, there might be true transformation that takes place that might affect ourselves from the inside out and challenge and, and change and bless all those around me. So we commit ourselves to you now, Lord. May you be glorified at this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there was one particular verse that stuck out to me as I was reading through this passage, which I was really encouraged by, but I found fascinating that it was stuck there. And that was verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Why then does he put this particular phrase right here after he talks about all this other stuff and goes, do not be deceived? Why? Because we as people have a tendency to deceive ourselves. We are told this in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart of humanity, your heart, my heart, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know this? And you know how you know your heart is deceitful? The way you justify your wrongdoing. You do something wrong. You might steal something from somebody and say to yourself, they have plenty. You might download something illegally. It's a multi-billion dollar company. What's it going to matter if I take 200 gig or whatever? You know what I mean? We justify. They did it to me first. Therefore, I'm justified in my response. That's how you know your heart is deceitful. And the fact that he writes this here in verse 16, he says, do not be deceived. He's addressing a a particular group of people here. If you look in verse 1, he says that he's writing to the 12 tribes of Israel of the dispersion or the diaspora, meaning this, that there's a whole bunch of Hebrews that have been spread all throughout the known world. And because they're all spread throughout the known world, what happens is, as believers, you have different churches that are here or different churches here. It's like me writing to like all the Polynesians scattered throughout the, is it seven states in Australia? I don't know. I've only been here 20 years. Is it seven? Seven? Six and two? Five and two territories. I was close. I'll say seven. Scattered throughout the seven lands of Australia. It's like me writing to the Polynesians in the seven lands of Australia. That's what it's like. And so when you have all these different groups scattered all over the place, one of the things that can happen is for different reasons, things can creep in. 
there might be different teachings, different ideologies, different worldviews that can sort of creep in. There are different contexts with each group. And you would start to question various things that take place dependent upon that. And so what I wanted to do today is do an overview firstly of the first maybe 15 verses Uh, And then in contrast to that, the focus of where this comes down. So he says, do not be deceived, is because we can be deceived by numerous things. The first thing he challenges us about is do not be deceived by persecution. There we go. Do not be deceived by persecution. In verses 2 to 4, we read this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, when I speak of persecution here, I'm referring to the definition, dictionary.com says this, a program or campaign to exterminate, drive away, or subjugate a people based upon their membership in a religious, ethnic, social, or racial group. Now, it is common knowledge, I guess you could say in church history, that there was a lot of persecution that was taking place for the Christians of the first century because they believed who Jesus was was, and did not acknowledge, say, Nero, the, the emperor as God or the, the various Jewish leaders that didn't want to acknowledge Jesus as who he was, as the Messiah. There was a lot of persecution that took place. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes we as people, when we go through hard times, question. And we start to wonder, what did I do wrong? God, I am following you. God, I am serving you faithfully, and yet I am suffering. Why? This is how we deceive ourselves, don't we? Because then we then start to question, does God really love me if I'm going through hard times? Does God really love me if I've lost my job? Does God really love me if a loved one gets sick or goes through? Does God really love me? And we start to question this, and this is how we deceive ourselves. Now, persecution, though, as described here, isn't talking about the stupid choices we make. For example, I lose my job because I'm not doing my job. People know that I'm a Christian and I lose my job. Oh, why are you persecuting me? No, you, you lost your job because you weren't doing your job, not because you weren't you're a Christian. You make a stupid decision then you suffer the consequences of that stupid decision. You can't call that persecution. That's called stupidity. Okay, so we need to differentiate between the two. This here is talking about living godly. This here is living according to a standard of righteousness that is beyond this world's righteousness. Three weeks ago, we had our lovely brother Martin Fong come here, and he shared what? 2 Timothy chapter 2, sorry, chapter 3, verse 12. That if you live godly, you will suffer persecution. Yea, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's the reality. We are told once again here in First Peter chapter 3, verse 17, that if we suffer for doing good, that is God's will. It is God's will that you suffer for doing good. That is the reality of it. And the reason you suffer for doing good and you suffer for living godly is because you're living to a set of standards that is in direct contradiction to what the world promotes today. For example, for example, 
We don't, we don't, well, we shouldn't, we mustn't, we, we, we better not be. Premarital sex. We, we sit there and we go, okay, I want to I save myself until marriage. I want to save myself to marriage so I can give myself wholly to her and she can give herself wholly to me. And in the world, you sit there, and, and I didn't ask my son's permission this, but I will share it. Okay, no, no, I won't, I won't. But what I will say is that I know a guy, right? And uh, <laughs> it's a joke. No, but, but the reality is this. I, I do remember when my son was actually, he was at uni and he was talking with this girl and his housemates were sitting there, oh, you trying to, you know, you're getting a number. And he says, no, I'm, I'm treating her as a, I, I like her as a person. I'm treating her as a person, treating her with respect, with dignity. And the first thing they get told, what, are you gay? And he gets harassed for holding to a godly standard. That's what happens. When you're at work, when you're at work and there are some shady dealings going on and you in your job, especially in the corporate world, because I hear and I've heard from people in the corporate world that it's brutal. The corporate world is brutal. Like it's just ruthless. It's a shocking, it sharks. I'll stop talking about the corporate world now. But, but, the corporate, but I hear about the corporate world and that you as a godly man or woman of God making a stand against such dealings where it could jeopardize your job, that's suffering persecution. That standing for that which is godly. Because it's a direct contradiction. You have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world and there is conflict. And if you desire to take a stand for the things of God, then you must expect conflict. And Jesus even warned us of this in John chapter 15. In verse 18 and 19, it says this, if the world hates you, got that? Meaning you as Christians, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's verse 19. And this is how we can be deceived. By thinking God doesn't love us because we go through hard times. God has never promised an easy life for us as his followers. He never said it was going to be easy. He never said it was going to be sweet and that you would not have any problems. What he did promise was his grace and his presence and his strength for us to be able to work our way and walk our way through such hardship. That's the difference. So that's the reason why we have to be very, very careful. It's all about the world in which you belong to. This is why when James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, it is done so with the idea that such trials are being experienced due to the righteous standards being lived out and that you are blessed by it. You look at this in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. When he talks about blessed are you when you suffer persecution or men revile you for my name's sake. He talks about that in Matthew 5, 10 to 12. And what is produced in us through the trial. And that's why he says in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfast is a word that means firm in purpose, unwavering resolution, firmly fixed in place. There is a resolve that grows in trial, not blindly, but evidentially and experientially. 
It is not wishful thinking or stubborn, stubborn bullheadedness, but a resolve grown in hard times because of that trial. When you go through hardship, dependent upon where your eyes are looking will determine how you come through it and how you actually view it and how you actually see it. That's why at the end there is no lack because you know. There is no lack because you have seen. There is no lack because Christ is sufficient. There's a, a gentleman, an athlete, a former graduate of Regent College, uh, an intelligent man who made this lovely quote in one of the devotions. Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, our, our brother Andrew Finn, as we seek to live lives for Christ, we must appreciate that it won't necessarily be easy. Trials and difficulty will come, but the reward of intimacy with Christ and treasures in heaven has no comparison to anything else we may find in this world. This is not to say we need to seek out trials. No, that's very true. We, need, we know from 2 Timothy 3.12 that trials will come to those who pursue godliness. Nor does it mean that all trials always have a neat and rational explanation. Often pain and suffering can be senseless and just plain difficult. What we do know for sure is that God is always at work. He is building up his children, cultivating perseverance and strength. Wise, godly words from a wise, godly man. This is the reason why we must be very careful when we suffer persecution. One, we're suffering for the right reasons, so we can actually interpret that as persecution. And two, allowing God to work his good work within us, to transform us, to be more like him, but also to strengthen us in each of those trials. So that's why the first warning here is don't be deceived by persecution. Just because you're persecuted does not mean you have been forsaken by God. Just because you are persecuted does not mean that you are not loved by God. So it means viewing your persecution in the right context. The second thing we're warned not to be deceived by is don't be deceived by inadequacies. We are told in verses 5 to 11, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously in all, to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith uh, with, the, with no doubting, for one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Being and recognizing an inadequacy before God is essential. Now, remember there he is writing to Christians, you see, when it comes in terms of our salvation, how we are accepted by God, we are inadequate. We are completely inadequate to make ourselves acceptable to God. We are told in the Bible that there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Why is there nobody that's righteous? Because according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are inadequate because of our sinful nature. And because of our sinful nature, we are then in turn children of God's wrath. We are deserving of judgment. And this is the reason why Jesus had to come. This is the reason why we celebrated communion now. Because of our inadequacies, because of our standing before God, God saw us. And I really love the example that John gave of Francis Chan, Francis Chan's illustration. The heart of God was such that he saw us 
even with his son crying out to him, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he, because of his love for us, allowed him to go to the cross. And while he was nailed there, take upon himself your sin and my sin, your offense and my offense. And he paid the the debt that we could not pay. He paid the price that we could not meet. He met all of that in such a way where he said, it is finished. And that through faith in him, we can be made new. Through trusting in him and being born again of the spirit, we are made new creations in Christ. That, in that sense, he then makes us adequate. He makes us acceptable to him. Now, in regards to our position before God, this is one of the really exciting things that we have been given as believers in Jesus Christ. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are told this. We have been given these things. We have been made complete. Through faith in Christ, we've been made complete. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says this. For in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So catch that. All the fullness of the Godhead is in the person of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 10 we read, and you are complete in him. You've been made complete. I know there are those of you who are like in relationships and you've got your boyfriend or your girlfriend or you're married and you've been married and you're sort of like, you have that really cool line where you walk up and you're like, hey baby, you complete me. How cheesy, yeah, that's just so cheesy. But, you know, you, but you, and it's true, you feel like you completely, I feel like I'm a whole person now. But this is what you've been made in the person of Christ. The person of Christ has made you complete. You were broken before Christ. You were hurting before Christ. You were sick before Christ. And what did Christ do when he came into your heart and became Lord? He healed you. He made you whole and he set you straight. That's what happened. So you are made complete in Christ. And because you are made complete in Christ, you are made new. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ Jesus, behold, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have come, become new. You are made a new creation. He didn't just patch something up. Now, I'm a terrible person when it comes to repairing stuff. I will try to patch something up. I will try to patch it. it might, something falls off the car, duct tape. Yeah, it's fine. It'll be all right. It stays. I cracked, I cracked my rear. I, I reversed into a pole and I cracked my rear, my rear light. Just the casing. So I was like, ah, oh, super glue. Still there. Still there. It happened four years ago. It's still there. Okay. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But see, this is not what God does for us. God did not look at Joe and say, here's some super glue, Joe. I'm going to patch you up. No. He did not look at Joe and say, hey, Joe, I'll make your head shiny. No, he didn't say that. What he said was, I have made you a completely new creation. And because we are what? Because we are made complete, because we are made new, we have all sufficiency of things in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 starts off, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for you. The sufficiency of Christ is found in us because of Christ. And lastly, we are made for good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Now, even though we may find theologically that we are made these things, this is why he says in verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom. See, it's one thing to know something. It's a completely different thing to apply what you know. That's what makes it wisdom. 
See, inter- being intellectual, I, go, I, I work at Borkham Hills High, and I've met some amazingly intellectual, like, brilliant people, intellectually. Common sense-wise, they're as dumb as bricks. But, like, they are some of the smartest people I know. And I think, wow. And then I watch when they do something, like, can you take this? And they're like, huh? And come on, man. Like, it's that you take this and move it here. How do I do that? You lift it. Okay, and so yeah, 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 have that sort, have that sort of thing. Now, I'm not saying everybody's like that, but see, this is where we are like this, in the sense that we know a lot of information. We know we've been saved by the grace of God. We know that we are made complete. We know that we are made new creations. We know that we have all our sufficiency in Christ. We know that we are complete. And we know all of those things. But wisdom is when you take what you know and then it changes how you live. That's the difference. That's the difference between knowledge according, sorry, wisdom according to the Greek and wisdom according to the Hebrew. Wisdom according to the Greek is I know a lot. Wisdom according to the Hebrew is I know and I live what I know. That's the difference. And so the reason why it says do not be deceived by your inadequacies is this, that you pray and ask for the wisdom to apply such magnificent truths as this, to, to actually live out and accept and believe and, and act upon the fact that God loves you, the, the fact that God has done so much for you, that God has given you each other, that God has given us this church, that God has given you his spirit. This is why when we said, because what, what do we do? What do we do? Oh, I don't know enough. Oh, I'm not smart enough. Oh, I, 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 I can't do what they do. You, you, you sit there and you're deceived by your own inadequacies because you, you play this whole self-centered, oh, please, I, I, the wrong sort of language. Please forgive me. I didn't, you play. We play. We play this whole idea of I, I can't serve because I'm too old. I can't serve, or I can't do this, I can't get involved with the older people's lives because I'm too young and the old people are just like old. You know? or I, I can't go and talk to a person about Jesus because they might make fun of me. You, you see what we do? We, we play all these inadequacy cards to excuse us for not doing what we're supposed to be doing. But you know what happens? Uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians, and I've shared this before, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and this is the reason why such reasoning and such thinking is ridiculous, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I read this, and I, Paul, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So you read there about Paul. He went there. He was fearful. He was trembling. He didn't go with much wisdom. He didn't use flash words or anything like this. So you sit there and you say, oh, I'm, I'm scared. According to God, you're ideal to do this. You say, I don't know enough. Well, according to God, you're ideal to do this. If, if you're scared, if you're fearful, if whatever excuse you might have to say to yourself, I can't do this, the inadequacies you have, what God says is you're ideal to do this. 
That's why we can't be deceived by our inadequacies. And what I like is the fact he says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives generously. This is what I love about our father. Our father looks and he says, you come and ask me. I have so much I want to give you. I have so much I want to bless you with. I have so much I want to bestow upon you. You come and ask me, Lord, I don't have wisdom. Oh man, Johnny, here you go. Oh, Lord, I don't have enough wisdom. Oh, Nick, here you go. How do I be a better father, Lord? Oh, I've got this for you here. Lord, how do I be a better husband? Oh, how can I be a better child? How can I be a better work employee or employer? How can I be any of those things? You ask of God, it says he gives generously. He gives generously. I asked Jirel for a chip one day. He had hot chips. I said, Jirel, can I have a chip? He goes, sure. And he gave me the one that was half bitten. Our God doesn't get, he gives us the whole chip. He gives us, he gives us all, the, he gives us the $10 chips. He gives it all to us. There's no holding back there because he gives generously. So we can't be deceived by our inadequacies. The third one is don't be deceived by a trial and temptation. And that's from verse 12 on. I'm, 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 I'm sort of taking a bit too long. Sort of, but here, here's the thing. Once again, we are told in trials and temptation, this is once again the deceitfulness of our hearts that when we go through stuff and we fail, we can sometimes blame God for this and ask why. Now, if you look at verses 12 through to 14, we read this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. I'm reading from the ESV. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You want to know why you fail sometimes and why you're given to temptation? That is not God's fault, it's your own. Tony Evans in his series, and I shared this on the armor of God, is we have authority and power in the Son of God over everything to overcome. We are overcomers in Christ. But what we do is that we give the enemy and say, look, here's a stick, beat me with it. That's what we do. We give the enemy the means to which defeat, to, in which he can defeat us. That's what we do. And so we sit there, we can't say, I'm tempted, well, if I'm tempted, I'm tempted of God. No, it's, it's my own desires. You know, you know, if you really want to do something, you'll do it. You know, if you really want to find something that you know you shouldn't be doing, you'll find a way to get around it. And you'll have even times, I know I've done this, and I know where I'll be sitting there and I'll be wrestling with this, should I really do it? Should I take it? Oh, and then somebody will call me, a brother will call me, and you think, you know that's God saying, hey, hey, bro, how are you going? Oh, I'm good, man. I'm good. What are you doing? Nothing. I'm not doing anything. And you know it's God sitting there giving you a chance, trying to say, look, come away from that. And you, you still push your way through it. And you know you do this. We all do this. That's why we can't sit there and blame God for the temptation, because it's merely the enemy appealing to our desire what we like, what we want to do, and he plays on that. But we praise God. See, we can't be deceived by that. What I mean by that is we can't justify it and say, well, God did this. No, he didn't. We did. And that's why we need to be able to get over this. Now, okay, and that's why I like Mark seven twenty, and he said, what comes out of a man defiles him. That reveals our heart. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles a person, not what goes into them, okay? Now, 
I want to just jump to where I think is the most important aspect of this passage. You see, you have don't be deceived by persecution. You have don't be deceived by your own inadequacies. Don't be deceived by trial or temptation. Don't be deceived by those things. But the way such deception is overcome is actually done what's in contrast after verse 16, which is verse 17 and 18. And what I really like about verse 17 and 18 is this. It says that we are to be confident in God's nature, in in the relationship we share with our God. What's the best way to overcome deception? Truth. Truth is who Jesus Christ is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How do you overcome deception and persecution is by having your eyes focused on Christ. How you, how, you, how you overcome deception and your inadequacies is by having your eyes on he who makes you whole. How you overcome your deception and trials and temptation is, is being on him who is the all in all, the be all and end all. And so in verse 17 and 18, we read every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So I want to just break this down. One, he is our father, and he is the giver of the good and the perfect. We read of how he gives to us as his children, and that he, and what he gives is good and perfect, how by his grace he goes out of his way to give good things. For example, in our standing before God, There we go. Every good and perfect good. And our standing before him. So we have, and our standing before him, Ephesians chapter 1, 2, verses 1 to 3 says this. And you, and this is describing us, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we read in that that is our state. And yet in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we have this. Actually, verse 4 is a great verse too. It says, but God who is rich in mercy and his great love wherewith he loved us. That's, that's actually in verse 4. But you have this contrast of, yes, this is who we were, And yet in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we read this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So you have this good gift of salvation that has been given to us, that is perfect in every way, that has, as shared before, made us complete in every way. We are given life, John chapter 10, verse 10, life abundantly. We are given gifts in order to serve, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. We are given his spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. We are given each other, the saints, Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. From our spiritual standing before God to our physical blessing that we have right now to the blessing that we have in the fellowship of the church, our health, our jobs, our family, our friendships, our opportunities, and so on and so on and so on can be attributed to the good gifts that God has bestowed upon you. That's it. 
That's it. You walk out and you see a sunrise and you just go, wow. That's a gift that God has given you. The fact that you wake up in the morning and you yawn and you've got morning breath, you can still thank God that you're alive. I remember Charles Spurgeon, he wrote a book and he talks about how he actually went and there was this church that he went to and this guy was always saying, praise the Lord, and he always found something to praise God for. Then one week he comes and his hand's really badly cut up and he's like, wow, I wonder how he's going to praise God this week. And he goes, what happened, brother? And he goes, oh, I was at work and my hand got stuck in the machine and it got munched up. And he cut it right through. And he goes, wow. And he goes, ah, oh, but praise God, I didn't cut it off. And I was like, and it, it, I thought that was hilarious. I thought, That's really cool. But he understood that everything was given. Every good gift was given by God. And it was by our Father coming down from the Father of lights. Remember our Father two weeks ago from Pastor Brett talking about our Father who is the, the personification of power and his identity as Father. I always remember that line. But it's referring to him as the Father of lights. What does light do? Light illuminates, light reveals, light exposes. Thus, the Father, the Father, our Father, is working with us in a way that reveals to us where we need to change. That he's working in a way that would guide us into the direction that we need to go. That is convicting and challenging us about things in our lives that may need to be done away with. Because that is what our Father does. We are told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, as the Father of lights, he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. Having the eyes of your understanding enlightened that you may know. That's what your Father's doing. Your Father's giving you information so that you may know what you're supposed to be doing. So you may know what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, our Father of lights, who also corrects us. I was talking with Alison last week, and she was sharing with me one of the parenting studies that she's doing on Right Now Media that the lady was sharing and saying, love is demonstrated in discipline, and that your child knows, knows their love because of the boundaries that are set around them. Not in the freedom that's given them, but in the restrictions that's placed upon them. Why? Because of your love for them. Once again, it focuses on his role as our father and as the one who has authority, sovereignty, and direct involvement with our lives. As we come to understand these facts, a father that gives us good gifts, perfect gifts, comforting facts, and the comforting fact that's in relation to these. First thing is this, that there's no variation no variation. Variation speaks of subtle, minute alterations, maybe due to context, outside influence, or time. The reality, though, is there is a consistency of character within God's eternal nature that cannot vary. While God may speak to us individually in different ways, the immutable or the unchanging truth is that God communicates. That while we as humanity seek to walk away and deny Jesus Christ, the immutable fact is he's always reaching out and always inviting. Uh, the fact of how people might sit there and still reject and make a mockery of or curse who God is, the immutable fact is that God loves you and that God loves them and God died for them. There are these immutable facts that never change. Uh, we're told in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, 
His mercies never come to an end. Remember the scriptures, it says, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is an immutable fact. That will always remain the same. The other part is a shadow due to change. A shadow changes so slowly that you never really notice it. And, and, and the shadow changes only at its direct positioning to where you are and the, the sun. We are told that God is not like that. We're told that God never actually changes, even a little bit, no matter how long it goes. He is, he is consistently the same, and he will never change. There is not even a hint of it that will occur without God. The time things seem different, the time when there's a shadow that sort of impairs our vision of who God is, is not because God has changed, it's that maybe I've changed my position to him. The fact that I probably don't see God anymore is not because God's hidden himself, it's probably because I've turned my back. Maybe that could be it. The problem is that if I don't see God anymore, maybe it's because I'm focused on someone else. Do you know what I mean? That might be the issue. That might be the issue. But we are told in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. For I, the Lord, do not change. Now, this is the way deception can be overcome in our context. The means by which circumstances, doubt, fear, misconception is overcome is through the established relationship we share with our God through Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important. This is why it's so You want to know why we always encourage you to read your word? Because we are told in the word that that's how our faith grows. We are, do you want to know why we always encourage you to get along to say prayer meetings or Bible studies? It's not because I sit there and I'm like, oh, we want numbers at the study. We, we want numbers. We want, to get, we want to get a big study group. No, no. We want lots of people at prayer meetings. No, we don't want it for the numbers' sake. We see it as a benefit to each and every one of us, myself included, to be around the saints and pray to our God together and to study the word and worship our God together, to, to call them up and to bless each other together. That's what it's about. That's the practicality of it. And, and the way such things are overcome is the cherishing of that relationship with Jesus Christ. The cherishing of, of spending time with him in his presence, or spending time in his presence and heeding what he has to say. And, and here's the thing, and this is what my challenge is with, with us today as we look at this book of James, that it, that it goes beyond this, that it goes beyond us just going, yeah, it was, oh yeah, yeah. That it goes beyond that and actually involves us stepping out of the front door there, taking a step and saying, can I tell you about Jesus? Or, or taking a step and saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. Or, or taking a step and saying, I had a relationship that was bad with a brother that I want reconciled. Or, or, or taking a step and saying, I, I want to commit to being in the Word each day and then sharing that with somebody so that they're blessed as well. James is about practicality. The practicality, the functional practicality of living a godly life to your kids, to your spouse, to your brothers and sisters, to your church members, to your next-door neighbors, so that they see something different. They see the active working of God in your lives. That's, that's what it is. That's what it's about. So here's something for you before I close. Each day, you've got five chapters in the book of James. Each day, read one chapter. 
Monday to Friday, you read one chapter. This whole, for the next seven weeks, for the next seven weeks, you read one chapter of James. So Monday to Friday, it'll be one, two, three, four, five. Boom. Then you start again. One, two, three, four, five. Boom. You do that for seven weeks. And when you learn something, when God speaks to you, when God impresses something upon your heart, I want you to share that with someone. It might be via a text. It might be, it might be I don't know, you, you put it on a devotional wall. You share something. What I mean by that is this, is that when you learn something, it's not going to do any good. Yeah, you've been blessed by it. How does that bless someone else? God did not bless you just to make you feel good about yourself. God blessed you so that you can bless someone else. That's what it's about. So that's my challenge for you. That's, that's this week's homework for the next seven weeks. Seven weeks, seven weeks homework. This, this is your assignment. Yeah, yeah, your assignment. This is your assignment. There's your assignment, okay? That's my challenge for you. And, and if you're visiting, please, by all means, be a part of it. Be a part of it. Even if you never come, even if you never see me again, because if I see you, I'll be like, did you read James? <laughs> Three years from now, and I'll bump, in, I'll bump to Ryan. I'll bump into Ryan. Hey, Ryan. How you going, bro? Good. Did you read James? <laughs> no? Oh, bro. <laughs> okay, you, you're all good for that? All right. So, this is the challenge, guys. Something practical. Every day, read it. One chapter a day for the next seven weeks. I'll give you weekends off because I'm a nice guy. I'll give you weekends off. But when you learn something, share it. Because when you share it, it blesses someone else. And also, when you share it, it helps stick in here and in here for yourself. I'm really excited about this, guys. Let's go. I'm going to close in prayer. We're not going to sing. I'm going to close in prayer. Ash, thank you very much for your help, brother. I appreciate that. Um, Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, so much for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you for the reality and the practicality of James. And thank you for the wisdom that's found within. And I pray that you might continue to impress upon our hearts that we will not be deceived by ourselves because essentially that's all it is. We're deceived in persecution because of our views. We're deceived in, 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 in our inadequacies because we're looking at ourselves. We're deceived in trials and temptations because we fail to see our own weaknesses. Father, I pray you'll help us to get our eyes off ourselves and upon you, our Father of lights, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. We thank you that you never change, that there is no shadow of turning or variation within you at all. And as we look upon you now, I pray you might stir our hearts to take seriously the call on our lives to live godly lives for you. So we ask you to dismiss us now, that as we leave here, we might truly put into practice what you've impressed upon our hearts this day and bless someone else in this church. So we thank you now and ask you to dismiss us in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, usually we have a prayer team up the front. Oh, sorry, sorry. As long as one's those patronizing claps, eh? Um, we, have, we usually have a prayer team up the front. So if the prayer team wants to come up front, if you want to be prayed for, we would love to pray for you. It could be anything. You know, like, there's nothing in it. It might, be, it might be a challenge, like, Lord, help me to commit to this, to this assignment that Joe has given us today. It might be, oh, can, can you just pray for a sick member? Can you, help me in, can you pray for me? I don't want to make decisions in my life. So I'd love for you to pray for you today. If you don't want to be prayed for, that's fine. We're going to have out the front there uh, morning tea, afternoon tea, oh, lunch. Okay, so uh, no, it's not lunch, it's just, just cookies and coffee. So, yeah, head on the front there, and please talk to people. Thank you very much, brothers and sisters.
<laughs> thanks, Nick. Thanks. Freedom. 